getting right into it tonight, <clears throat> and um, I was sitting there singing tonight with that song, and and for a moment I could I could see my breath. I thought for a second, and uh, I thought, man, it's cold. We're already here, you know, front front end of November, and uh, it's already cool and cold inside the church. I'm sure you guys are halfway warm in your heated seats, and uh, what a blessing for you. And um, <laughs> but uh, but I'll tell you what, I, I when we get into what we're going to get into tonight, I personally believe. Uh, any kind of complaining is going to probably go out the back door, okay? Um, man, my soul. Ezekiel, what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful testimony. So we're going to get in our Q&A. Q&A is the service tonight. I was going to send out a text message to you guys and let that uh, let you know that that's what we're going to be doing. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and get ahead of yourself and go to Ezekiel chapter 4. Now I'm going to have much of the verses on the screen, but I really would like you to follow around in your scripture tonight. Uh, just because I think you to familiarize yourself with your Bible. And, uh, and on top of that, guys, we need to be familiar with the Word of God. I, I don't know about you, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm very attached to my Bible. I like to have my Bible with me no matter where I am. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember where verses are located in certain chapters and certain places. And, you know, they're on the bottom left-hand side of the page and here and there. And, and that's what that familiarity is uh, about, about being familiar with, with your Word. Um, but we're going to get into this question tonight. And again, like I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. It's cold in here. I get that. And, and uh, yeah, it, it rains here 270 days a year. And, uh, and I get that. I understand it. And wintertime, it's going to be dark, you know, for the majority of our, our couple of months. I understand that as well. But I, I guarantee you, you're not going to want to swap roles with this man by the name of Ezekiel. I can promise you uh, with all my being tonight. Ezekiel chapter 4 is where we are. Here is the first question. So it says in Ezekiel 4, verses 4 through 6, why is it 390 days for Israel and 40 days for Judah? So to bring you up to, up to date on, um, up to your knowledge, I should say, uh, concerning the question, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and just kind of grab a hold of the whole context, okay? We'll mainly be looking at verses 4 and 6, but we can't leave off the first three verses either. So Ezekiel chapter 4, look at verse 1 with me. Uh, the Bible says there, it says, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee, and portray, it, portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, set the camp also against it, and set batteries against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan. And set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city. Set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a siege in the house of Israel. Verse 4. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee... Uh, the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side. Thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. So guys, it would behoove us to understand a bit of a background of Ezekiel, time of when he is preaching and prophesying, 
and who he is and, and really and truly what's going on. Rather than just leaping into chapter 4, giving a, an answer uh, to the question, which by the time we get to that answer to the question, you'll be like, well, why didn't you just say that in the beginning? Uh, which is, it is a, an understandable and a, a fairly simple question to answer if you just leave it like that. But again, you, you would have no background of Ezekiel. You wouldn't know anything about him, what he's doing, why he's doing what he's doing. So just like Jeremiah, Ezekiel was a priest as well as a prophet. He's known as the exile prophet, okay, because he prophesied during the time of the exile. He was one of the 10,000 captives uh, taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar uh, at the time of Zedekiah, okay, Judah's, Judah's uh, last king. Uh, he began his miserable reign, in all fairness. Zedekiah was a terrible guy. And uh, you find that in 2 Kings 24, verses 11 through 20, and you can write that down if you want to. So we know that Ezekiel spent 11 years in Babylon before the final fall of Jerusalem. And that's important to know as we'll get into a secondary question today. His exile home was in a place called Tel Abib. Now the word Tel or the prefix Teb, T-E-L, uh, that means man-made mountain, okay? Uh, Tel Megiddo. Tel Megiddo is a place where, you know, uh, the arm of, of Megiddo, Armageddon, um, you know where that is. And so it's called Tel Megiddo in Israel today because it's a man-made hill, if you will, not such a mountain. But we know his home because we, we read chapter 3, verse 15 of his book uh, on the river of Chabar, uh, which the river Chabar flows uh, un, into the Euphrates, north of the city of Babylon. So the colony of deported Jews, and this is what you need to know, uh, who lived in Tel Aviv were cons probably considered to be upper class or better class uh, Jews in society. All right, so just know that, put that in the back of your, head, your, your mind, if you will. Ezekiel gives us the dates for his visions 13 times in his book. He's very clear, uh, he's very precise about this. We're not going to go over all those because that doesn't matter as to, to address in this question. But the reason I'm telling you that is because he's very detail-oriented in his prophecies. God gave him the prophecy. They tell him. God inspired the book of Ezekiel to be written. Uh, there's no mistakes or anything like that. Inside the Word of God, we know that it's perfect. But Ezekiel reckons from the, the tragic year of, of his life when he was deported in Babylonia uh, and, and goes forward from there. Uh, he begins prophesying in the fifth year of his arrival in Babylon, six years before Jerusalem falls. And this is why the first 24 chapters in the book, uh, of his book, is much about the coming judgment of Jerusalem, okay? It's the coming judgment of Jerusalem because he's prophesying what God, he's trying to warn these Jews, if you will, of what was going to happen. So the book opens up with a heavenly glory in the vision of the cherubim. We've read that before in chapter one. It ends with the earthly glory in the visions of the new temple. So by the time he ends it, he's talking about the second coming. Uh, he's talking about the, the millennial kingdom. In between that, we find a story of the departing glory, the departing of what is known as the Shekinah glory. So Ezekiel is this exile prophet, and he's got this glory of this heavenly view of this cherubim in the front end. He's got this glory in the back end of his book of the new temple being constructed and, and, and you know, the Lord setting up his kingdom and so on and so on. But in between all of that, he has to bring the judgment, if you will. He has to bring the prophecy to his people. And it's about the really and truly the depression that the Shekinah cloud is gone. It's missing. I kind of touched on this a little bit on Sunday. I can't remember if it was here or in the, in the Cardiff campus. 
about how when Daniel referred to the God of heaven. See, there was a point in time when that Holy Spirit of God, I think this was actually in Cardiff now that I'm thinking about it, but there was a time when the Holy Spirit of God departed from uh, the temple, departed from the holies of holies. That's where he dwelt, but there was a time when he departed, and that was that Shekinah glory being removed. So, and we, and we know that because the name, you know, instead of the God of the earth, he became the God of heaven, okay? And I had said down there that was a story for another time. But the idea of glory, I keep coming back to that word, the idea of glory runs through the book of Ezekiel. It runs through his prophecies, even though what he's asked to do is some of the most outlandish things on the planet that he would be doing. You ask someone. Now, Dr. Schofield um, reckons there's, that, that the, book, the major divisions of the book are indicated by two expressions. Uh, one is the hand of the Lord was upon me, and then the secondary divisions by the expressions, and the word of the Lord came unto me. That's what he recommends. I'm not disagreeing or agreeing with that. But we do know that the book of Ezekiel, uh, there is three well-defined divisions. Well-defined divisions. The prophet first addressed his own exiled people before the final siege of Jerusalem. At the time of the fall of Jerusalem, he turns his attention to the Gentile nations and addresses seven of them. And then again, he turns his attention to his own people. With Judah fallen and, and her people in exile, he comforts the captives with a glowing account of the glory of what is yet future, a future that those people would never see. Uh, and it can, be, it can be broken up like this. I do have this on the screen. You get the fall of Judah, chapters 1 through 24. Uh, you have the foes of Judah, chapters 25 through 32. And then finally, through the book, you have the future of Judah, okay? The future of Judah, uh, which is, um, which is uh, chapters 33 through um, 38. And uh, cool. Okay, so now to get into where we are, guys, if you wanted to read the entire chapter that we're looking at, chapter 4, I would highly recommend it. Uh, reading the entire chapter down to verse 17, you're going to see an incredible actions that Ezekiel was commanded to perform. And some, I use the word outlandish, outlandish duties for one singular purpose. It was to symbolize the future and the fate of Jerusalem. Okay? Now guys, I'm all about props. I love props. I love visuals, visual aids. I mean, you know, I've, always, I've, I've always loved those. Things. I think a lot of our men today go, go overboard. I uh, saw a guy the other day... Uh, uh, with some type of contraption strewn across his stage. It wasn't a pulpit, his stage, and, and it was nothing more than entertainment. It, to me, it was a joke. I don't know anybody in their right you know, mind who would have received a godly blessing out of that, but maybe they got some entertainment from it. I'm not into that. I don't believe church should be a puppet show. It's not a place for entertainment, but rather a place for edification and enlightenment through the Word of God. That should be the central focus. But what Ezekiel did goes beyond some of the things that we may even consider. To simply answer the question, and you can write this down, the 390 days represent 390 years of, of Israel's um, iniquity. We see that in verses 4 and 5, where it says, Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. 
For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Now, there's a twofold application there. We're going to get into it in more detail later on, but I do want to give you a heads up, because I don't want you to think that it is only representative of the sin that they committed in the past. It's both representative of 390 years of them being backslidden away from God, while it's at the same time, it is representative of the 390 years that they're going to pay back to God from stepping away from Him. Okay? So we need to understand that to be, uh, to be clear tonight. Same thing we find, once this was completed, He would lie on His right side for 40 days, which are depicting 40 years of Judah's iniquity. And that's in verse 6. And when thou hast accomplished them, speaking of the 390 days, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40, year, 40 days. And I have appointed thee each day for a year. Very clear in the scripture of what the days represent. But remember, the question is, why did Israel get 390 and Judah only 40? And, it's, it's, and there's a few things that we're going to look at um, to, just to kind of help you out just a little bit. Um, but Israel, remember, is the northern tribes, that's the 10 tribes, uh, went astray long before Judah. So if you want a simple, down, dirty answer, the reason you get 390 years or 390 days against uh, Israel and only 40 against uh, Judah, the simple answer to that is tonight is that the northern tribes, which is uh, that tribe, they went astray long before Judah did. Judah held on as long as it could, but we'll see something here in a moment that's, well, I'll save that one for later. I'll save it. They did hold out longer than Israel did, but what they did in 40 years um, equated to what Israel did in 390. So I kind of get the cats out of the bag. So anyway, nevertheless, guys, they're going to pay these years back uh, by servitude under another kingdom, under another under a Gentile rule, if you will, uh, for all of these years. And Jeremiah, I mean, Ezekiel is prophesying that right here. Now, here's something I want you to see that is interesting, okay? Uh, go back to verses 1 through 3, and uh, this would just be a prelude. We'll go into it more detail here in just a moment. But in verses 1 through 3, he says, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile, and lay it before thee, and uh, portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. And it says, And lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it. Uh, set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for an iron wall between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign, okay, circle that word sign, to the house of Israel, okay? So what are the thoughts on the 390 years, just real quick, and I want you to hold your thought there from verses 1 through 3. Um, when you add the years of the reigns of the kings of Judah, from Rehoboam to Zedekiah, uh, as recorded in First and Second Kings, uh, you have a total of 394 years, all right? Uh, since, during, since during three of those years uh, of the reign of Rehoboam, he walked with God. You find that in Second Chronicles 11, verses 16 and 17. So in the years that he walked with God, and was doing right, there would be nothing to pay back or iniquity laid against them, yeah? So you find that. So once you deduct those years away, you're getting much closer to the 390. Keep in mind also, uh, when we look into courses of months, because the 390 is roughly 13 months, we'll see that in a second. These are 30-day months, 360-day years. That is a biblical year. does not matter what our calendars say today. doesn't matter what the Masonic Lodge says. matter of fact, they don't matter at all, okay? Um, you know what I'm saying? What matters 
is what the Bible says. 360 is a perfect circle. All right? So you got 360 days in a biblical year. You have 1,260 days in a, in, in a biblical six months, if you will, which is three, you know, or, or not six months, sorry, for three and a half years uh, or 42 months. All of that comes up to a 30-day month, and that's how it is. Um, so this is where our calculations are, and that's where you've got to be mighty careful uh, when you start doing these calculations because we get, people begin to look at our calendar and our days and our months and our years and all this and that, and they get thrown off. So, number one, we find that he was, he was ordered to engrave this tile. We just saw in verses 1 through 3. This tile of Jerusalem. This tile was, you know, two foot by, you know, two foot by four foot tile. Uh, it's like a plank, if you will, almost like a, like a piece of slate, if you want to get that in your mind. And, uh, it, it, it was, it was Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem's honor, while she kept her integrity with God, to have graven upon the palms of his hands. You find that in Isaiah 49, verse 16. This graven upon the hands of God. And the names of the tribes were engraven in these precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest. But now this faithful and godly city, this city of David, if you will, became a harlot. All right? A worthless, brittle tile, a, a brick, if you will, whatever it may have been made out of, you know? Uh, that was the picture. That's why he says, take a tile, this thing that's brittle and old and, and, and not strong anymore, you know what I'm saying? And... Um, and I want, you to, I want you to portray the city. In other words, I want you to draw the city on there, okay? So picture with me, if you will, that he's taken this tile. He's drawn Jerusalem as best as he can uh, on this big tile. And now the prophet must lay before this tile and look at it that his, what did Jeremiah say? Mine eye affecteth mine heart. You know, we always look at that in such a negative and sensual and sinful uh, connotation. But, but Jeremiah is known as what type of prophet? This guy's the exile prophet, Ezekiel. What was Jeremiah called? The weeping prophet. He writes the book of Lamentations, doesn't he? One day, he writes it on the ninth of Av. That is Israel's darkest day. That was, that was when the siege began upon the nation of Israel. Jeremiah's heart was affected weeping-wise when he saw um, his city turned against God, his people turned against God. So now God's doing the same thing to Ezekiel, who's already in ex exile, as a sign against the people who could have gotten right when they were, they were taken off, and they did not. And now he's got to look here at this tile that he's drawn, this holy city that he's not even near, mind you, and he draws it by memory, and he has to look at it that his eye may affect his heart. Number two, we find that he was ordered to build little forts against it. Now, I, 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 I don't want to... Um, I'm not making a joke out of anything by any stretch of the imagination, but there, you almost begin to think of like a child playing with little army men and building forts and Lincoln logs and things like that. It's almost to that sense, if you will. Now, it's not, but, but you can get an imagery tonight on what he was doing. He has the tile, the city. His, his heart is affected by it. And now God commands him to build these little forts um, against this portrait of the city resembling the battles, guys, the batteries that are raised by the besiegers. We see that in verse 2, and we won't reread it. Between the city that was besieged and himself was the besiegers, the enemies, the foes, if you will. And they, then he set up what? An iron pan. What was that iron pan a symbol of? 
an iron wall, okay? That iron wall represents the inflexibility of the foes, uh, the resolution of both sides. The Chaldeans were resolved to do whatsoever, at whatever cost it was, to, um, to take this city over, to conquer it. And on the other side, the Jews were resolved to, to never capitulate whatsoever, uh, but, but to hold out to the very last extremity. But there's a thing that happened, and again, we'll touch on it briefly, when they build that wall, when they, when they cut that city off, what are, they all cu- what are they cutting off to the city? Water, food, resources. And, you'll, and, and that's actually part of the latter part of the chapter, even chapter 5, that another symbolism, another um, imagery is used as judgment against the city when it speaks of the cow dung and the man's dung that, that he had utilized for food. food. So the third thing that we see here concerning these days and, and what Ezekiel had to do is that he was ordered to lie upon uh, his side before, this, um, before this, this tile, this imagery, if you will, this, this, this set-up battle of array. And, um, and he's representing the Chaldean army, okay, lying before it to block it, to keep, it, uh, keep the meat from going in, keeping anything from going out. He was to lie there for 390 days, according to verse 5. And about, that's about 13 months. I've already mentioned that. And the siege of Jerusalem is con- uh, um, um, uh, computed uh, to last about 18 months. Now think about this. That's in Jeremiah 52, uh, verses 4 through 6, I think. And so, um, so if we deduct five months, all right, five month, a five-month in- interval from that 18 months uh, siege upon Jerusalem... Uh, when the, and what happens, according to Jeremiah 37, verses 5 through 8, that was when Pharaoh's army came in. Remember that? And so they had to, we deduct those five months because they had to withdraw upon the approach of Pharaoh's army. So now you get to that 13-month interval represented by the 390 days, okay, of the besiege that was going to happen during this particular time. It brings us closer to it. So, you know, all of that, uh, you know, all has another signification as well. The 390 days, according to the prophetic dialect, if you will, uh, guys, signify 390 years. We've already mentioned that. And when the prophet lies so many days on his side, he bears the guilt of that iniquity, okay? He bears that guilt, uh, which the house of Israel, the 10 tribes, uh, had borne for 390 years. So there's a multiplicity of things that are going on of him doing what he is doing. Um, you know, and it's reckoning from their first apost- apostasy under Jeroboam, all right, uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem, which, uh, which completed the ruin of, of, of the small remains that had uh, remained there, the, 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 what would you call them, the vagabonds, if you will, uh, that incorporated Jerusalem in the, by, by the final siege. After the 390 days are completed, Ezekiel now is commanded that he has to lie for 40 days upon his right side. And so long to bear the iniquity now of the house of Judah, which is the kingdom that only had two tribes. So again, still addressing the question, 390 for Israel, 40 uh, for, um, the, the, uh, the, for Judah, for the, for, the, for the two tribes. The key point is the measure that is filled. Here's what I mentioned, I, mean, I kind of alluded to a moment ago. Israel had 390 years where they just backslid, starting with Jeroboam onward, okay? Uh, you know, 390 years of a backslidden status, of, a, of sin-filled lives, not walking with God, turning away from Him. And yet Judah held strong for many, 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 many of those years. 
But the measure-filling sin of the people, were, were they were guilty, guys, what they were guilty of during the last 40 years before the captivity, since the 13th year of Josiah, when Jeremiah began to prophesy, and that's according to Jeremiah 1, verses 1 and 2, some and most reckoned from the 18th year, but nonetheless, when the book of the law was found, remember that, remember the book of the law was found, brought to Shaphan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, 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 you know, people renewed their covenant with God. And when they persisted in their impieties, they insisted in, in their rebellions, rather than turning to God and, and, resort, and uh, enjoying the advantages of reformation and repentance and renewal, the measure of, of its iniquity, guys, for Judah took place in less time than it did for Israel. So, in other words, to put it simply, and this answers the question a little more uh, simple, the measure of iniquity and sin that Israel accomplished in 390 years, Judah filled in 40 years, in the last 40 years of its existence there in Jerusalem. Makes sense to you? That, that answers the question pretty much about why is it 390, why is it 40, why is it different? So he would be found, Ezekiel would be found, constantly on the same side. Uh, when people would come and view him, they would see him. He'd be lying before this, this city, um, before this uh, diorama, if you will, as if bands were laid upon him. And in reality, uh, that was true according to the divine command. Bands were laid upon him. The Lord said himself that he was going to put bands to represent um, the iniquity that's laid upon him that would hold him down, hindering him from moving from one side to the other. So he couldn't turn himself to one side until he had ended his days of the seas. Uh, he did plainly represent a close and constant continuance of the besiegers upon the city during that number of days until he had gained the point to the people. Now, this is not part of the question, but just in my studies, um, some men addressed it. Some would say that he did not lay there 24-7 in such a manner. Because we find throughout chapter 4, there's other things he's commanded to do. All right? The only problem with me being dogmatic on that fact is that the other things that he was required, remember, you're talking 11 years, all right? 11, you're talking about 18 months total, roughly, out of 11 years of him prophesying. You see what I'm saying? So guys, I think it is logical to understand. He got a daily ration that was very minimal of food. He could have sat, he could have eaten it. I think it's very logical to accept the fact that Ezekiel could have, according to the divine command, perform this duty the way God commanded him to do so, all right? The other side of the coin is he did it 12 hours a day during that period of time out of curiosity. People would come, they would view it, they would see this, and they would come over and over and over and over, and they would see him during that appointed time of him performing this duty. And then the other times, eating, sleeping, cleaning, whatever, performing the other aspects. I can settle with either one of them, but I'm going to lean toward the side that he continued this on a daily regimen once it was accomplished, it says, and then he flipped over and, and performed the other. That's just what I'm going to it, Outlandish as it may be, um, if you study the entire chapter 4 and then even get into chapter 5, 
you know, in reality, this is nothing compared to what he ends up having to do. And uh, so, nonetheless, so that's the end of question number one. Question number two ties from the same book, and a uh, really good question. Uh, all of these are good questions, and I'm loving them. Uh, but Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14. You go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to. Ezekiel chapter 14, and we're going to look in verse 14. Bottom right-hand corner of my page. Ezekiel chapter 14, it says, In Ezekiel 14 and verse 14, when was this and where was Daniel at the time? Okay? Now, the thing about this statement of chapter 14 is a, it's more or less a parenthetical statement. Chapter 14, verse 14 tells us, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Okay? Now, there's one thing that you find in that verse, is you find a works, faith, salvation. Okay? Old Testament. To work faith. Anybody that comes to you and say, well, no, there's all, we're, they, in, in every, everywhere in the scripture, everyone's saved by faith in some way. It's always, in the Old Testament, works and faith. There's a work involved in it. Okay? Uh, you can argue that if you want to. You can sit on the other side of the fence and say, no, it's always been this. It's always been grace. But the methodology of salvation, of where you're going to exercise that faith and how you do so, changes according to the dispensation. We taught on the seven dispensations here uh, a while back. Uh, once the tribulation period comes about, it goes again to a works slash faith salvation. Clearly, we know Revelation chapter 12, you know, they lost their life. They had the testimony, all right, for the, the, the works they did and the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right, works and faith. But anyway, that's beside the point. So verse 14 gives us a statement here saying, Those, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. Now, what is the it? Well, the it is established in the previous verse, which really kind of gives us the context of the entire verse. Saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. There's your word it again. So verse 13 speaks of the sinful people who have turned their back from God, which is an obvious reference toward Judah and Israel. We know that. Verse 14 reveals even though a people or a country has turned against God, an individual can still walk right before God. In other words, you do not have to conform to the culture. Conforming to a culture is your choice that you make. And we find that clear, as, as Ezekiel says, Job didn't do it, all right? Though he slay me, he said, I will, he, I, I will not curse him, right? And all of this, the Bible says, Job sinned not. We see it in Noah. Noah was a righteous man, the Bible says. He was perfect in his generations. He was a preacher. For 120 years, he preached the judgment against the people. And then we turn around to Daniel. Daniel purposed in his heart, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself uh, with the king's meat nor with the wine where, which where he drank. Therefore, he called for the eunuch, right? Prince of the eunuchs. Purpose in his heart. Daniel's an upright man. So these, he, we're, you're given an example here that Ezekiel is prophesying and preaching that just because the whole city has gone bonkers, these three right here delivered their souls through their righteousness. You understand? It's very important to understand that. Now, 
we do see that there's a position of grace, all right, with Job and with Noah, because it's pre-Mosaic law. And then there's a position of, of law works, if you will, but still grace, and it's all of it rooted with faith in Daniel, because that's during the dispensation of the law. Daniel was taken captive, just to answer the second part of the question of where he is. Um, so, again, to the first part of the question, when is this? This is a parenthetical statement. This is a statement that Ezekiel uh, is making. And then to address where Daniel was at the time of this writing, Daniel was taken captive during the first siege upon Jerusalem, which is 606 B.C., uh, which is roughly eight years prior to um, Ezekiel being taken captive. So when Ezekiel would have preached this message, Daniel would have already risen to a high-ranking position in the government. He was already kind of a top dog uh, in the Babylonian government, if you, if you will. That's where Daniel would have been when, he, when Ezekiel was writing this. Okay, uh, Very good question. Very good question. But again, to make sure I clarify the when that this was written, it's a parenthetical statement written sometime, obviously, between uh, those years of when uh, Ezekiel was writing, but, but Daniel would have been around, uh, but he would have been in his position uh, serving the government and as the way God had commanded him. So question number three tonight, this is our final question, and uh, I love this question. This is, this is, I've loved all of them, and I've got to be honest, man, this Ezekiel and Jeremiah's question have just, man, they set a fire in me about studying the Old Testament. I have, uh, you know, I've, I've really loved getting back into it, and uh, I do promise that we're going to do a sectional study, Bible study on Wednesday nights uh, on Jeremiah really, really soon. And uh, so we'll, we will get that done. Uh, definitely, hopefully, start it by the new year, if not beforehand. So but we'll see how it goes. So question number three. All right, question number three. Make sure, is that it? No, man, that's the wrong question. Oh, so I didn't copy and paste that question over there. I'll give it to you and write it down. While it's defending the King James, someone commented saying, Easter, in quotes, found in Acts chapter 12, which I do have the verse there, found in Acts chapter 12, should be Passover like the other Pascha, if you will, which is the Greek word. Would you mind helping me in this? Now, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. This is my all-time favorite argument by the Bible critics. Those who love their little perversions, and that's what they are, okay? Those who enjoy their satanic Bibles, okay? Come hate mail, come on. All right, I love it when they open up with this one because this is the easy one. Okay, this is the what do we? Here's what you do. You know, sometimes you know you you can fool someone that you're you're unknowledgeable, and then you open your mouth and you relieve all doubt. Right? That's what this question does. When somebody says, "Well, that should have been that shouldn't be Easter because Easter is a pagan holiday," it shows you there is so much that it reveals to you about that person using an argument. Nine times out of ten, the person using that argument, they don't even know what they're saying. They're, they're just a sounding board or a mockingbird from someone else. That's what they're doing, you know. They shouldn't do that. They're still in the wrong. They couldn't back it up for anything. But they're just sounding off what somebody else has said. They've done no research. Because it only takes two verses right where they are to find out the context of why Easter is used and not Passover. All right? So read the verse with me, the verse in question tonight. And we're going to hit a couple supporting verses here this evening. Acts chapter 12, verse 4 says, And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison, and delivered him to the four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. 
So in your Bibles, guys, if you mark, and you should, you should underscore and highlight in your Bibles, guys. Uh, I want you to circle that word him. You see, when he had uh, apprehended him, so circle he, and then he, circle the next he there. Him is referring to Peter, so don't circle that one. And then delivered him to the four Katerians, uh, to the soldiers, to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth. So there's two he's right there. I want you to, in the very first sentence, the very first part of the verse, I want you to circle. All right, so we'll be coming back to those here in just a second to establish why it's Easter and not Passover. So the word Easter, this is the supposed most famous, quote-unquote, mistake uh, that people uh, try to uh, claim the, Bible, the, the King James Bible has, or a mistranslation, trying to say that the translators made a mistake, etc., etc. The problem is, is both Martin Luther and William Tyndall, um, both uh, 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 more than 90 years before the King James showed up, um, use, use both words in their, in their uh, translations. Both of them call Jesus Christ our Easter lamb, all right, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, the King James has got it perfect, all right? Martin Luther and William Tyndale did not on that verse. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 it says, Purge out therefore the eleven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The context in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 is complete polar opposite of the context of Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, okay? And so, the fact that the Greek word, and that Greek word is called pascha, all right, pascha, okay, it's the word that is used. Uh, it's a word that's used by Greek-speaking Greeks for Easter. That's the word that is used, all right? Uh, it's known as what is known as a dynamic equivalence. Now, this is why I love this argument that people use in Acts 12, because your NIV people, your ESV people, your whatever, HIV people, all these people that's got a problem with the blood of Jesus Christ, okay, all of these people that want to attack the King James, you know what their go-to phrase is? Dynamic equivalence. Well, we don't have the Word of God, but we got the thoughts of God. Man, who in the world do you think you are? You mean to tell me that you're so smart, you're so intelligent, that you know the thoughts of God when His Word says, My thoughts are higher than thy thoughts, my ways are higher than thy Really, man? So they want to come out with a dynamic equivalence. And it's practiced by every single version on the market, and especially the NIV. Especially the NIV. Uh, the, the translators who did the NIV, they're nothing more than apostates. They're not even saved individuals. Um, they refuse to translate more than a thousand words, literally. An English to an English. Refuse to do that. And in the few places where the King James uses this technique of dynamic equivalence, uh, all of them, guys, you know, all of them, uh, the religious hypocrites, if you will, they attack it bitterly. Every single one of those areas. And... You still say, they still use or claim to use that same methodology. So the reason every English translation up to, the NA, up to the AV retained the reading Easter is because the translation Passover in Acts 12.4 would have been an outright lie. As a matter of fact, it would have been heretical to use the word Passover there. The context has established it very simply, okay? You see, Easter here occurred during the days, plural, okay, of unleavened bread. All right, so we go back to our, we go back to our, our book here in Acts chapter 12. And let's go one verse above. Like I said, guys, the whole answer is established right there in, in the area of where they are. Acts chapter 12, and look in verse 3. Circle this in your Bible. 
Verse 3 says, And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days, plural, of unleavened bread. So two things that I want you to circle in that verse is I want you to circle saw, S-A-W, and I want you to see circle days, plural, okay, plural, okay? So it was not the day, singular, all right, of unleavened bread, which is the Passover. Luke chapter 22 and verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. All right? Must be killed. So you can write down Luke 22, 7, and also write down Matthew 26, verse 17, to show that the day of Passover is a singular day. A singular day. Uh, it was seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All right? Leviticus chapter 23, verse 6 says, And on the 15th day... Uh, of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. You can also find that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 15 through 18. Those follow the Passover. Okay? Passover is singular. Day of unleavened bread. And then there's the days of unleavened bread that follow the Passover. Okay? Does that make sense so far? All right. So, Give you another verse, Leviticus 23, verse 5. Uh, and in the 14th day of the first month, at even is the Lord's Passover. All right? So that's your singular day. The days of unleavened bread follow uh, the Passover. All right? So Passover, in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, where the word Easter shows up. Passover, all right, was over and done with. By the time, matter of fact, you get to verse 3, the days of unleavened bread, Passover was finished, okay? So, it's Easter, Easter, it, uh, the Easter of this verse, okay, is a pagan feast named after Ashtaroth. We see that in Judges chapter 2. I'm just going to read one verse, but I got multiple verses, addresses up there that will establish this fact. It says, and they, and they forsook uh, the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth, all right? You can also write down Judges 10, 6, 1 Samuel 7, verse 3, 1 Kings 11, 5, 2 Kings 23, 13. I'll let you, I'll give you plenty of time uh, to write those down. But as you see, this Easter, guys, is also known by Asarte, known by Ishtar. Ishtar is the more famer, famous one. And then uh, Eurystra, all right? And it's the feast observed by whom? Who? Observes, observe, uh, observes this feast in our text here. Okay? It's the feast that observed by Herod, man. The one who arrested Peter. The one who pleased the Jews by uh, going to kill James and all this and that. So in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now about the time Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. Herod was a, uh, a Roman adunaman, if you will, an Edomite. Uh, he was intended on executing Peter uh, after the observance of his own religious festival. All right? His own religious festival. So he didn't do it on his religious festival, which is not Passover, because Passover is already finished. Uh, he, did it, he was not going to do it on his own religious day. But they have no problem, the Romans have no problem in an execution on the Passover, do they? Jesus Christ was crucified, yeah? So, here's what I'm trying to tell you guys. They don't have 
any problem whatsoever in doing these things. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is after the Passover. Uh, we, we see that very clearly. This is Herod who is speaking, who's holding off to, not, uh, to kill Peter, if you will, on his own religious day. So guys, the, the argument that they use, um, the argument that is used that Easter should be Passover is very simple. Uh, the, how you address that question, obviously you're not going to do what I just did uh, if somebody's having that, that, con- that confrontation with you. First off, guys, if you can avoid confrontation, do so. Um, you know, I'm not going to be in a coffee shop arguing about the King James Bible. All right? You know, the validity of the Bible, maybe, but I'm not going to sit there and do that. Because whereas, you know, the person that I'm speaking to who's arguing with me, number one, they're probably not going to be convinced. Number two, there's too much collateral damage around. All oh, those two Christians right there, they can't even get along. Look at them, they're arguing. When we get down to it, it's the gospel. I reject all English translations that are not King James. Every one of them, okay? Uh, very clearly and very easily, mind you. All right? I'm not going to drink water out of a stream where I'm looking down the way and a cow's urinating in it. Are you? The stream that the King James comes from is a different stream that every one of the modern versions come from. The stream that the King James is established to is, is right after the Texas Receptus. That's how it goes. Yeah, I understand you know, that, that a high percentage of Tyndall's work is in there. I get that. Thank God for Tyndall's work. But Tyndall's work, although blessed, was not inspired, you understand, or not preserved. Inspiration, I should say. The, all of the modern, modern versions come from two manuscripts known as the Codex Sinaiticus, which was found in a waste bin in a monastery. No, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, a waste bin in a monastery on Mount Sinai. A waste bin, rubbish bin. And then the Codex Vaticanus, which is found on, in the Vatican. Nothing good's ever came out of the Vaticanus, nor gone in it. All right? If you went to the Vatican, sorry, you're, you may be good, but nonetheless. It was found in pristine condition on a bookshelf in the Vatican. All right? Those two, code, those two manuscripts. They claim to be older and better. They're not older and better. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Okay? They are called the critical text. Textus Receptus means received text. That is the inspired work of God. That God has preserved according to his promise, Psalms 12, 6, and 7, okay? We know that that's his job. So that's why we, and it's simple, it's easy, all right? I just don't, I don't need to dabble, okay? Most people are confused about everything there is to do with Christianity because they're reading out of a book that was not blessed by God's hand, okay? Just stop it, okay? I'd avoid it at all costs. And uh, so nonetheless, having said all that, that brings us to the end of Q&A, but guys, I do love that question. How you will answer that question simply to someone if they throw that out to you is that, well, let's look at the context of who's speaking. Who, who is it talking about? Verse 1, it's Herod. Number 2, it says the days of unleavened bread, which is after Passover. So this is not the Passover in verse 4. Verse 1 tells us that it's Herod. Verse 3 tells us that the days of unleavened bread, which is seven days, uh, seven days continually after uh, the day of Passover, okay? That's simple. So in other words, Herod's not going to kill someone on his religious day because he was a pagan. All right, you did, I did that in 30 seconds. That's your answer, all right? From that point forward, if they're not going to buy into that or learn, they're typically going to be unteachable. There's just no point in going into it, all right? What I would go directly into is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Bible critics are rarely ever saved, all right? rarely ever saved and born again. If you're criticizing the Word of God, 
How, how, what are you basing your salvation on? A feeling? Well, I felt good earlier, and I may feel bad later on. Am I, am I insane? So my salvation is based on faith in the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Make sense? That's how, and you're saved by grace through faith, all right? Is that not of yourself? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, right? So having said that, to make that very clear tonight, those who chip away and try to tear down the Word of God, and a better word would be here, but you have to question where they're getting their knowledge and where they're getting their stand and what they're basing their salvation on. If they're basing their salvation on anything other than the Word of God, under the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're not saved. Now, it does not mean people aren't saved outside of the King James Bible. Please don't take that wrong. I, I emphasize the Bible critics, those who criticize the Word of God, who criticize the preservation and purification you know, of, of, the Holy, of the Word of God of the King James Bible. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I know there are people that do get saved, have been saved, in spite of what version has been used, okay? But there again, if they're criticizing and tearing the Word of God down, you got to ask, where, where's that coming from? Where's that coming from? Amen? Amen. So that brings us to an end Q&A tonight, guys. I hope that it was a blessing to you. Uh, Got to be honest, it was a tremendous blessing for me. Uh, it was anniversary yesterday for Denise and I, 25 years of wedded bliss. We had a tremendous time, but having said that, uh, I, I took very few phone calls yesterday. Uh, did take a few messages to book counseling meetings up for today and tomorrow. Um, and I didn't check any emails that I can remember yesterday unless it was early in the morning so today was my Q&A time studying digging opening up and this and that and I absolutely loved it guys keep the questions coming thank you so very much for